love you, baby. I ain't gonna lie. Without you, woman, I just can't be satisfied. Cause when things go wrong, so wrong with you, it hurts me too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season two premiere of the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who plays Stu Beggs in the Showtime original series Californication, Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> Stephen, you have been a busy boy during these last few weeks, haven't you? I have been a very busy boy. Uh, you know, I did one of the last glees, and then I went in and got this lovely role on Californication, uh, Stu Beggs. And yesterday, I started working on my second show of Californication, and uh, I, I don't know if fans of the Tobolowsky Files are ready for this, but... Um, it was hinted, it was hinted, and I'm not saying this is a fact, that uh, fans of this show may get to see uh, Stephen Tobolowsky in the nude on Whoa. Californication. Whoa, no, Stephen, are we talking about uh, full frontal or only like ass side? <laughs> David, I don't think the world would be ready for full frontal. I know I'm not. I, I think you know, full in the frontal. Morning, I have to put on my Avatar 3D glasses when I get out of the shower. It's tough. <laughs> I think Full Frontal would, would tear apart the, uh, the fabric of space-time, in, in my opinion. That's... It, you know, I have to tell everybody out there, you know, David Chen, uh, even though it's much earlier here in Los Angeles than in Boston where he is, he just woke up, but he doesn't know what today's show is, right? We have not discussed. We've been off for three, four weeks, and I've been writing, but David doesn't know. He just almost gave the title of this week's show. This is how psychic David Chin is. Uh, this week's show, absolutely correct, David. It is about the space-time continuum. And the title of this week's podcast is Dark Matter. This, I, I'm, I'm stunned that you were, you were so right on. Well, we have that connection, Stephen. And, and I should mention, I should mention this too, even though we're recording this ahead of time, I believe... I believe this is going to be aired right around Mother's Day. Yep, a couple days before Mother's Day. So um, I, I wanted to uh, give a shout-out to all the dear moms out there. I, I, I tried in this story to include not only the space-time continuum, but as you will find out, there is a thread of motherdom in this as well. Um, <laughs> but I should go back to the beginning. I should go back to the beginning. We, we had to take a vacation from the Tobolowsky Files because I actually went back to Dallas to celebrate my dad's 88th birthday. And if you're lucky enough to have a parent around after 88 years, you know that that is cause to celebrate. And it's always nice to talk about the good old days, especially with someone who reaches 88 and can't necessarily remember the good old days. Our home in Dallas is noteworthy because it has two of the worst beds still in use in the world today. Now, <laughs> I've already discussed my single bed, 
how it has lost its structural integrity about 20 years ago when one screw and one wheel from the frame vanished, effectively turning the bed into a teeter-totter. So when I went home this time, I got on my hands and knees to get a better understanding of the bed's dysfunction. And I was also curious as to how something so relatively small and so close to the ground could be so unstable. I lifted up the dust ruffle, and I used my cell phone for light, and I made a startling discovery. Someone, and if you listened to last season of the Tobolowsky Files, you will understand this. I definitely suspect my mother. Someone made an attempt to repair the bed, not by replacing the screw and the wheel, but by propping up the wacky corner with my brother's old electric football game. I gasped as a flood of memories of playing that game came back to me. Now, this, this game has to be 50 years old. It was bought at Sears not long after the discovery of the electron. The nostalgia was too great, and, and I should explain for everybody out there who, who thinks of electricity in a game, this game was old school. <laughs> I mean, the electricity didn't make the men run. It just made the board vibrate, causing the players to shake. And if you were lucky, they would shake forward. And if you were unlucky, they would shake backwards or fall over. So I set up the teams and I plugged up the board to see if it still worked. The vibrations of the board were still louder than a 747 taking off. The players fell over, ran in circles, making it unrecognizable as a football game. But it was more like a recreation of Monty Python's upper-class twit sketch. But despite the lack of functionality of this game, I still didn't have the heart to stick it back under the wobbly leg. So I went in search of another bed. Down the hall was my sister's old bed. This bed is as deadly as a silent fart. It looks innocent enough when it's made. But you pull back the covers, you lie down on it, even for a nap, and it becomes a sort of time machine. You wake up and you feel like you're 100 years old. You can't walk. You're bent over like a question mark. You're weak. You're disoriented. It's like a make-believe episode when Lex Luthar disguised himself as a mattress salesman and sold Superman the bed with kryptonite sewn into the springs. What makes the effect all the more horrifying is that the sheets, the blankets, the mattress pad, this part of the bed is made up of some kind of material that generates massive amounts of static electricity. I mean, the room lights up the night with bursts of lightning as your legs and feet are constantly shocked every time you roll over and don't even think about sex. Wow, we. My wife, Anne, and I discovered on one attempt that we generated enough DC current to light up the city of Plano. And I shouldn't complain. It is a non-polluting source of green energy. The first big part of the actual birthday festivities for my dad was the traditional dinner at the birthday boy's restaurant of choice, and dad chose the spaghetti warehouse. I found the spaghetti warehouse fascinating from a scientific point of view. Like the evolutionary jump from the Neanderthal to the Cro-Magnon man, it represented a leap from the all-you-can-eat restaurant to the more-than-you-can-eat restaurant. If they made a postgraduate course out of this, which I think they do now in the University of California system, you could trace the skeletal remains of earlier eateries in the dining experience at the spaghetti warehouse. 
Let me explain. Like an all-you-can-eat restaurant, they start you off with bread, lots of it, and they keep it coming. They serve it with something they refer to as herbed butter, which is just like regular butter, except you tend to eat more of it, I guess, in an attempt to get your daily requirement of herbs. Next, they bring you what they call the bottomless salad bowl. I would submit that any menu entry with the word bottomless in it was either a subphylum of the all-you-can-eat restaurant or was heavily influenced by the species. The psychology is remarkable. I got to say, I felt comforted, even satisfied that I had the opportunity to eat multiple bowls of salad. Even though I never do this by choice in my day-to-day life, I had two. And then they give you this gigantic bowl of pasta. And I'm just talking about the crockery. The dimensions of the bowl itself were remarkable. I felt like Jack and the Beanstalk sitting at the giant's table. To be honest, after the bread and the salad, I was already full. But I felt it was my duty to start eating the spaghetti. So I ate. And I had to use different psychological ploys to continue eating. First, I pretended I was hungry. Then I ate because I felt ashamed and didn't want to leave a full plate of food on the table. And finally, the actor in me kicked in, and I pretended I was a world-class athlete and had to carbo-load for my run in the Dallas Marathon. When I was done, I felt like an anaconda that ate a goat. I made it back to the house where I passed out in a spaghetti coma within an hour on my sister's bed. I woke up the next morning with a critical case of indigestion and prematured aging. And and I thought about it, and, and I think the symptoms would make a good special episode of House. I could see me on a gurney, Hugh Laurie hobbling over to me, staring intensely at his crew, yelling, Come on, people! Think! Think! Middle-aged man, but appears much older. Concretized colon. Atrophied limbs. Static electricity burns on his extremities. What is it? Think, people! Well, that morning, my brother came by for an interesting side trip. Paul loves science as much as I do and wanted to take me to a lecture at the University of Dallas. It was given by Dr. Steven Weinberg, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1979 for connecting two of the four major forces of the universe according to the unified field theory. This was the theory suggested by Einstein that everything in the universe is part of one big thing. Of course... This is something that most of us already know, but scientifically, apparently, it is very hard to prove. Dr. Weinberg's talk today was what he's been studying for the last 30 years, dark matter. It's all very mysterious. According to Dr. Weinberg, by measuring the changes of temperature from the early universe to today and the effects of gravity on light, we can calculate the total amount of matter in the universe. The problem is, 80% of it is not there. Or at least it's not there in any way we can observe it. The total mass of every star, every planet, every scrap of space dust we can detect amounts to only one-fifth of the universe. As you can imagine, this is a pretty big problem. Now, I would assume my math was wrong, but a physicist assumes the universe is missing. Dr. Weinberg brought up the obvious question. How do we know something is there when we can't see it? I thought his answer was quite elegant. He said, 
You don't have to see something to know it's there. You can know it's there by how it affects the things we can see. Dr. Weinberg may not have been aware of it, but in his search for dark matter, he accidentally established the scientific proof for metaphor. Most things in life are invisible to observation and are only perceptible through an array of associations. Here's an example. The gifts my wife has given me. Annie has given me many things over the years, and some are clearly in the range of matter, books, sheet music, CDs, but more often than not, they have crossed the line into dark matter, where the gift was not the object itself, but the effect the object created in my heart. People in love are the merchants of metaphor. Once she gave me a ring with a green stone that had what was called a horsetail flaw in it because I liked horses. That way, whenever I wore it, I could not only enjoy the ring's beauty, but could dream, through metaphor, of a horse. One year, she gave me a red mountain bike. I secretly wanted one because I thought it was a good way to stay fit. As it turned out, I didn't need the bike to stay fit. I only needed the bike shorts. After I squeezed in them and looked at myself in the mirror, I started going to the gym. But the real gift of the bike was invisible. It was symbolic of the life I wanted to live, one of adventure that harkened back to riding bikes with Billy Hart and the Dangerous Animals Club. But I think the greatest gift Anne ever gave me exists completely in the realm of metaphor. It is the essence of dark matter. We were dating, and one evening she gave me an old key to a grand piano. She said it was the key to her heart, and she wanted me to keep it. The bike was stolen years ago, but I still feel the power of that key. Dr. Weinberg was asked to describe dark matter, and he laughed and said that he was more prepared to describe what dark matter is not. It is not visible. It carries no electrical charge. It cannot decay. And yet, on occasion, it must annihilate itself somehow, or it would overwhelm the universe. Physicists are searching for proof of its existence by finding traces of this annihilation. Again, the doctor may not have been aware of it, but he was describing something very common that surrounds us daily. Something that's invisible but whose gravity directs our lives, something that never decays, but can continue long after we die. Dr. Weinberg had found the definition of a promise. The meaning of words created the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Cub Scout Oath, and the Wedding Vow. And like all dark matter, the promises we make are occasionally annihilated by our lies. And the traces of this annihilation are visible in broken faith and bad dreams. There was one night back in 1987. And for those of you who listened to season one of the podcast, I will reference episode seven, Once in a Lifetime. So it was 1987. It was two years after I made a prayer on my front porch at dawn, naked, wearing a red derby. I released a handful of helium-filled mylar balloons to ask to find a new way, a new life, a new love. But at that point in time, I was unfamiliar with the workings of dark matter. 
I was in the middle of my heartbroken stage of life. And I threw one of those parties at my house where people came out of nowhere to see how close they could get to the edge without falling. And the gods of sex and drugs and rock and roll were on the loose, threatening to turn the entire evening into a night you would hope to live to forget. Well, I left that party, and I wandered out to my vegetable garden where it was dark and quiet. And a few moments later, Anne wandered out too. Now, Anne and I had known each other for a couple of years, and we were casual friends. I recognized her as a very, very good actress who happened to be incredibly insightful. But to tell you the truth, I didn't really think of her very often. She was just the odd, shy, single girl that helped me wash dishes during this era of bacchanalian orgies. This evening, she also escaped into the garden, and we stood in the dark, and she asked me how my tomatoes were doing. And a cloud moved across the sky, and a certain gravity bent the moonlight, and it hit her face in a certain way, and it caught me by surprise. The light and shadows created a metaphor of unexpected beauty. And quite accidentally, invisibly, elements realigned, and I was changed. I would offer to Dr. Weinberg that his search for the unifying elements of all things doesn't have to start at the end of the universe. It can start in the tomato garden. I want you, baby, just to understand I don't want to be your boss, baby I just want to be your man When things go wrong so wrong with you it hurts me too so it was two years after the night of magic in the moonlight with our friends the tomato plants and Anne called me up to tell me she was pregnant insert the sound effect of your choice a ah b the silent scream c the non-silent scream. D, the zen sound of one foot kicking yourself in the ass. Okay, we didn't have a lot of sex education per se when I was in high school. In biology, we studied the sexual proclivities of the hydra and the frog. We made up dirty jokes about other life forms. Example, how is arithmetic like a horny amoeba? Answer, long division. Okay, it's not a good joke. I only use it to reference the level of our sexual education. But to tell you the truth, I don't think more classes in sex would have helped me out. Erections tend to be bad students. So now, at the age of 35, I had a first-hand tutorial on how sometimes we make decisions and other times decisions make us. The question was, what do we do now? As many of you know who have walked in my shoes, the what do we do now question comes up quicker than you ever imagined a life-changing question would appear in a conversation. It's usually the second sentence of the phone call. Hello, I'm pregnant. What do we do now? People are not used to thinking this quickly. I certainly wasn't. I was used to having a good two days to decide if I wanted to have sushi on the weekend. 
and I intend to speak at much greater length about this particular phone call in the near future, so I'm not going to go into it here. But I was getting the notion that my concept of life was all wrong. School had prepared me to think that our life was like our seventh grade reading lab. Now, the reading lab was not really a lab. It was a cardboard box filled with color-coded stories. You would start with green stories that were usually about Sally and her new puppy. They were printed in 21-point Helvetica font. It looked more like you were reading the top line of an eye chart. The story had about eight sentences and ended happily, thank God. But the more skill you displayed as a reader, you went up the color chart. At level 20, you were on light purple stories printed in 8-point Monaco font that centered around Brunelesco's understanding of cylindrical physics in the creation of the Dome of the Florentine Cathedral and how it contrasted with Isaac Newton's understanding of the same. I thought that was the template for life. You start out with puppies. You end up with Isaac Newton, and as long as you answer the questions at the end of the chapter, you would be fine. With Anne's phone call, I was now becoming aware that that was not true. I was learning the hard way that our lives could be determined by the simplest, even accidental things in life, like playing naughty rodeo horsey in bed. So, back to the question. What do we do now? The good thing about having to deal with big questions like this with no time to think about them is that your answer will probably be instinctual. And I'm not saying that instincts are always right, new, 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 but they're always a good indicator of who you really are, which is a good thing to know. We decided to have the baby. We decided to get married. Now, these were both two very difficult decisions, and Anne and I came to an agreement on both. Agreement is always good when you're starting life together. Agreement is another form of Dr. Weinberg's dark matter, invisible to the eye, but powerful in its effect. The pregnancy meant that Anne's acting career would be interrupted. I would have to become a breadwinner, We would have to get a house with a backyard where a child could play. We would have to turn our attention from vacation plans to college funds, to diapers, pediatricians, babysitters, bedtime stories. The ripple effects were a gargantuan. And as important as all those things were, we still had even more pressing problems. We had to get married first. I called up mom. Mom knew she was not happy with this entire course of events. She settled on Anne and I getting married as a distant second choice to pinching ourselves and waking up from the whole nightmare. She said if we were going to have a baby, we would have to get married right away so that when our friends started counting back months after the baby was born, there would be no stigma or shame. And I tried to explain to mom that we lived in California and we were immune to shame. But I quickly realized mom was right for another reason. If we didn't get married quickly, it would beg the question, why not? Don't you really love her? Don't you really want a family? It was dangerous territory. You see, even though I was only in my mid-30s, I had come to understand the big difference between men and women. Men move through life by getting snacks during the commercial breaks. 
but women move through life by jumping from question to question, like crossing a frozen river, hopping from ice flow to ice flow. Here's an example of a woman's thought process. We see each other every day. Why don't you ask me out? We go out all the time. Why don't we go steady? We're going steady. Why don't you introduce me to your parents? Your parents love me. Why don't we get engaged? We've been engaged for two years. Why don't we get married? We've been married for two years. When are we going to have a baby? Our baby is in kindergarten. Why don't we have a second baby? And finally, whatever happened to my life and do I look fat in this dress? If I didn't marry Anne quickly, the question would always linger, why not? And that stigma would hang over us forever. Why didn't you marry me right away when I was pregnant? The silence of my response would echo through the universe, gaining power over time and certainly doom any chance of us having a lasting relationship. Now, Anne, I should tell you, Anne had been married before and knew the idea of us having a wedding was impossible. Weddings require planning and invitations, best men, maids of honor, lots of crying. We didn't have the time or organization for any of that except maybe the crying. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, working on Great Balls of Fire. Anne was working in Alaska, working on a play on George O'Keefe. She flew out to see me to discuss the marriage question. I jumped to the default that many in my generation have turned to. If you don't have a good idea, add Elvis and call it clever. I suggested to Anne we drive to Elvis's birthplace across the state line in Tupelo, Mississippi, and get married there. Anne was mystified. She didn't understand the Elvis connection, and I don't blame her. I didn't own any Elvis records, I didn't dress up like Elvis for Halloween, and I didn't even have any hair. But the spirit of the, hey, he said, let's get married, don't argue, she was willing to make the trek, figuring it would at least amount to a good story. But then we found out that the state of Mississippi required a blood test for syphilis and a three-day waiting period, and that was enough to take the fun even out of Elvis. So we were back in Tennessee. It was around Christmas, and Anne said we didn't have many options. We couldn't get married in a church because I was Jewish. We couldn't get married in a synagogue because she wasn't. We couldn't get married by a sea captain because we were on dry land. And that left the justice of the peace, and they may be closed for the holidays. Now I started to panic. I was going to have to go to London in January for the movie, and who knows where after that. And by then, Anne may be showing, and it could appear to the world at large that I was marrying her for visible rather than invisible reasons. I was amazed how affected I was by the invisible force of acting honorably. I think generally people prefer invisible reasons for the things they do. It could be another repository for dark matter. Then it hit me. The awareness of what I was doing. I became genuinely excited. I was going to get married. I was going to be a father, but more than that, I was standing at a rare moment. I was stepping into a new act of my life. It was the first time my story would extend beyond myself. It was a story that was totally unique and totally common. It's a story I call the family album. I called the courthouse in Memphis and asked if we could get married that day. They said, yes, as long as we got to the courthouse before 3 p.m. They said there were two judges who hadn't left yet for the holidays. 
I asked, where should we go? The woman told me one of the judges was a civil judge and one was a criminal judge. Which one did we want? I thought it was a bad omen to start off our lives together with a criminal judge. So we were off to the civil court building. The place was as deserted as high school during the summer vacation. Our footsteps echoed down the empty hallways as we looked for the chambers of our judge. We found it. We walked into the office, and there behind the desk was a man in his 60s in a light blue jumpsuit wearing a gigantic black pompadour toupee. We could not escape the hand of Elvis after all. I said, excuse me, we wanted to get married and we were told to come here? The man in blue looked up with a twinkle in his eye, and then he looked over at Anne, and then he looked back to me and said, in a hurry, are we? I stammered and said, I, I heard we had to get here by three. He put down his newspaper and said, don't worry, son. I know I don't look like a judge, but in about 15 minutes, you're going to find out I am. I said, uh, yes, sir. He stood up and grabbed a register book and a pen and said, well, let's do it. Why don't you give me your $50 and I'll give you your license not to hunt. And then he laughed at his joke. And I, I could tell he viewed this as part of his A material. I paid them the money. I bent down the sign of the register and he stopped me. He goes, no, 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 son. You sign afterwards. You're not married yet. I got a little prickly with him. And I said, yeah, but we will be. He just looked at me with that twinkling eye and said, but you aren't yet. You never know what happens in that room. And he gestured to a door in his chamber. He walked over to it. He opened it and gestured for Anne and myself to enter. We walked into the Holy of Holies. And the first thing I was struck by was that the walls were covered with amateur golfing awards. He told us to stand in front of him and he reached for a Bible. He pulled out two index cards with the wedding vows printed on them. He handed one card to Annie and one to me. The corners of my card were bent and torn from frequent use, and I noticed there were two odd smudges on the front side of each card. But as I took it in my hands in preparation for reciting the vows, I realized these smudges had been made by hundreds of thumbs over the years holding these little cards. More than the marriage license, more than the Bible, those thumb marks made me tremble. The judge began, We stand here before the eyes of God to join this man and this woman in the bonds of holy matrimony, and began to cry. The judge looked up at me and said, Do you, Stephen, take this woman, Anne, to be your wife, to have and to hold? for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, as long as you both shall live upon your sacred word of honor. At this point, I was about to have a stroke. Now, I had seen weddings in movies and TV my whole life. I had seen a wedding scene on Bonanza. It had almost no effect on me. I had been in plays where I played a priest marrying people, so I knew this speech backwards and forwards, but I never heard that last part before, that upon my sacred word of honor part. Where did that come from? I snapped and I said, what are you talking about? 
Why do you think we're here? Of course I'm going to protect her. Of course I'm going to honor her. Why do you think? I mean, we ran all the way over here at Christmas time. We want to get married. The judge smiled and quieted me down with his hand and said, Son, a simple I do will suffice. I took a breath. I gathered my wits. I looked down at Anne. She looked up at me with a flood of tears. I said, I do. The judge turned to Anne and repeated the vows. She said, I do. The judge said, so do y'all have a ring? I pulled out a ring I bought for Anne for $35 at a roadside stand in Wales on our trip to England seven months ago. You see, on the way to the courthouse, Anne had taken it off and given it to me to give to her in the ceremony. The judge continued, this ring is an outward sign of the unbroken circle of love, signifying to all the union of this man and this woman in marriage. The judge leaned into me and said, now, read your card. My hands were shaking as I gripped my little card for dear life, and I left my thumb impressions as I read, with this ring, I thee wed. I burst into tears as I put the ring on Annie's finger. The judge said to Anne, do you have a ring? We both were crying, and we turned to the judge and said, in unison, not yet. <laughs> he said, that's all right. There's time. He looked at me and said, you may now kiss the bride. We kissed. The judge smiled. He had seen the power of those little cards at work before in his chamber. I finished kissing Anne and was looking into her eyes when the judge reached over and patted me on the shoulder and said, Son, now you could sign the register. There ain't nothing in the world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. Up in the morning, out in the garden, get you a ripe one, don't get a hard one. Plant them in the spring, eat them in the summer. All winter without them is a culinary bummer. I forget all about the sweating and digging Every time I go out and pick me a bit Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes What'll I be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy And that's true love, homegrown tomatoes That was Dark Matter, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You know, Stephen, over the last few weeks, we've gotten a lot of emails from listeners who've just been catching up with the show. Uh, what, what has kind of been the reaction during the last few weeks? Well, it, I'm finding that the emails are having more and more and more effect on the content of the podcast. I got several emails asking me that they wanted Anne stories. You know, because they know I'm married to Anne, and last season we had all the Beth stories, and they wanted Anne stories. Uh, they wanted parent stories. They wanted children's stories. So that got mixed into this. Now, I have to warn the people upcoming that we do have more Beth stories coming, and uh, we have <clears throat> a lot more showbiz stories coming, and <laughs> this kills me. Several requests for more pooch stories. So uh, <laughs> do not fear. The pooch is making a comeback uh, big time in uh, season two. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's, that gives people a lot to look forward to then. But uh, in the meantime, Stephen, if people want to share thoughts with you about the show, ideas, or share their own stories with you, how can they email you? 
I think uh, we've got several venues now, David. We have uh, the email, which is at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. I will spell it because a misspelling will take you to a nude website. And that is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling. But you can also find me uh, at Twitter, at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. And now I'm I'm on Facebook. Yes, correct. Right, and and what what is that address? There, that is Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. People are already going there and posting their thoughts uh, on the show and on your other work. Uh, so feel free to do that uh, because the you know you, it's very easy to share content and uh, and sort of information with Stephen that way as well. And I know a lot of you guys are probably already on Facebook, so that's what makes it so easy. Um, I also want to point out, by the way, that. Uh, is, there's a very strong likelihood that uh, next month, early June, first week of June, we're going to be having a slash film meetup featuring Stephen Tobolowsky. Is that is that correct? Oh, that's Stephen? so good. Is that is that still in the offing, Stephen? That that's a possibility? I think that is very much in the offing. And David, at that time, I will be in the midst of Californication, and that is when uh, you know we may bear all. So so that could be a slash film exclusive. I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, thank you for the offer. Um, so that that might happen around uh, June. The target date right now is Saturday, June 5th, but uh, we'll update you as we get closer to the date. But just thought I'd throw that out there for now. If Fantastic. you'd like to hear more of my work, you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. You can also find my other podcast at slashfilmcast.com. So that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. Thank you guys very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Now if I change this life I lead, well, I'd be Johnny Tomato Seed. Because I know what this country needs. It's homegrown tomatoes in every yard you see. When I die, don't bury me in a box in a cemetery. Out in the garden, be much better. And I could be pushing up homegrown tomatoes. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What'd life be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy.